Well, good morning. Welcome to The Vine. I'm Zach. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors here. And we're so thankful that you're here. It's a great Sunday. It's a beautiful day. We're starting out our new vision series uh, that we do every year at this time of year. Like, what are we all about as a church? And it's these three words here on the wall. Um, gospel, community, and mission is what we really stress and, and, and value here at The Vine. And it kind of shapes what we do as a church family. So we want to every year just kind of remind ourselves, because the assumption is that we're forgetful people. And so we always need to be reminded, what are we all about as a church? What, where is the place that we're going to plant our flag as a church? What are the hills that we die on as a church? And th- this is what we do in these next few weeks. So today I'm going to be talking about the gospel. What's the gospel all about? What does that mean? The gospel can often be just kind of like this. Uh, one pastor says it's like a junk drawer term. You know, you guys have a, drunk, a junk drawer in your house? Like we have one. So it's like anything where you don't know where to put it, we'll put it there, Right? And if you need something, well, look in the junk drawer. It's probably in the junk drawer, right? I need some paper clips. Oh, I don't know. Oh, they're in the junk drawer, right? Well, that, it's just like, eh, we'll just throw it in there. And, and no one really knows what's in there. Well, it's kind of what the gospel is. We say the word gospel all the time. But do we really know what that means? Do we know what that means? So we have to rem- remind ourselves. And then community and mission, we'll do those next couple weeks. So today, um, we're going to be in the gospel of Luke. And if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and... Open it. If you don't have one with you, just if you have a smartphone, just pull it out and Google search Luke 18, starting in verse 9. And as well, um, we'll have it on the screens here. And Jacqueline's going to come up and read our text for us this morning. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. The word of the Lord from the, the book of Luke. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get, of all that I get. But the tax collector is standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thank you, Jacqueline. Let's pray together. Father, we come collectively this morning, and we are exposed to your word. And Lord, may you do your work by the power of your spirit through your word among us this morning. Um, Lord, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we look to your word this morning as a gift to empower us, to help us. We know it's your will that we would be um, conformed, that we would look like Jesus. And we can only do that with your power And so we know your word brings that to us. And so um, do your work this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you a really important question. I would say maybe the most important question you could ever ask yourself. The question is this. What are you trusting in to save you? What are you trusting in to save you? Now, if you're a Christian already this morning... That might be an easy answer, or at least you know the right answer. If you're an unbeliever this morning, 
that might seem like a question that maybe I've never asked that of myself. Sounds kind of weird, honestly. But here's my fundamental conviction. Everyone is trusting in something to save them. Everyone is trusting in something or someone to save them. Here's what I mean. Everyone, just if you have a lungs that breathe and a heart that beats, if you're a human being, everyone explicitly or implicitly lives out their lives to answer this question. What's the big problem in my life and how do I solve it? Everybody does that, just unconsciously. What's the the big problem in my life? How do I solve it? So if my big problem in my life is the overarching concern of my brain is singleness, then salvation will be marriage. If the big problem in my life is, is loneliness, then salvation is relationships. If the big problem in my life is a, a lack of career advancement, then salvation will be the promotion that I want. If the big problem in my life is wrong political leaders, then salvation will be getting the right politicians in office. So what is it? We all want to be saved from some big overarching problem in life. See, whatever you are trusting to save you, meaning make your life ultimately feel worthy, purposeful, and complete, whatever it is that you are running after to answer that question, that is what you're trusting in to save you as you define salvation. Everybody does it. Everybody runs after something. Even if you're the, even if you're the laziest person in the world— then what is it for you? Comfort and ease. Comfort and ease is what you worship. That's what you're running after. It's what you're seeking to give your life ultimate fulfillment. So again, the question is this. What are you trusting in to save you? Well, today we're going to have Jesus tell us a story. And Jesus' stories are called parables. And in it, we we get to see the heart of what Jesus is all about. And it's what Christians call the gospel. Okay, let's take a look. Verse 9 of Luke 18. He says, he, being Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So back to the original question that we opened up with. What are you trusting in to save you? And Jesus is framing his parable, essentially addressing the same question. Did you see it in verse 9? He told this parable to, so he has an intended audience. He's saying this to some people, right? See it there? To some, verse 9, who did what? What does it say in verse 9? His intended audience is those who, certain type of person, what? Trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Another way to say that could be they were trusting in themselves for salvation. Think about this in our culture. If you ask someone in our culture, do you believe there is a God? And if so, will you spend eternity with him? 
There's a lot of people that say they believe in God, right? We see this all the time in, in high-profile funerals that have been on, on TV, whether it's John McCain, Aretha Franklin, or any, Michael Jackson. Any, any high-profile funeral on TV, you can see this, this cultural example play itself out. Almost everyone, believer or unbelievers, speak of that person as being in a better place or looking down from above. But here's the question. On what basis do we believe that there is a better place? On on what basis can we be so sure that this high-profile person or anyone else goes there? Well, see, the majority cultural answer that you'll hear all the time is they were a good person. They were a good person. And based on that, they'll be, quote, looking down from above. They'll be in a, quote, better place. Well, what that means, translation in the words of verse 9 is, that person was righteous enough. Their righteousness earned them the ability to look down from above, the the, the ability to be in a better place after death. Their goodness saved them. Their personal integrity saved them. Now, of course, no one's perfect, but this person obviously wasn't an expert or anything, so come on, right? See, verse 9, what is clear in this cultural example is that is the same thing Jesus is talking about as he opens his parable. People, quote, trusting in themselves that they were righteous. Or another way to say it would be they were righteous enough. So what does that cultural example show us? It shows us that almost all of us believe that our personal righteousness can save us. Right? Just be a good person based on your own subjective standard of goodness, right? Did you catch that? You created this standard for yourself, and so it just so happens that you meet it every time, right? And then, of course, God will submit himself to your standard and accept you based on your definition of goodness, right? See how that works out? Pretty convenient, right? Now, do you believe that? Maybe just a little bit? Maybe not verbally, but maybe internally. Maybe you never say yes to that, but that's functionally how you live your life. Good people go to heaven. Bad people go to hell. Well, at least they don't go to heaven, right? Well, see, Jesus has something to say to our culture and to our hearts this morning. And, and I think if, if we're willing to collectively be open to him, we might honestly be a bit shocked by what he says. Let's look at this parable in detail here. Verse verse 10. Remember the target audience, those who who were righteous in themselves and treated others with with contempt as a result. So he tells the story. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. All right, so let's stop right there. Let's, Let's set the stage here. As Jesus sets the stage, let's make sure we understand what's going on here. We've got two men. One's a Pharisee. So who are the Pharisees? What are they all about? Think religious elite. Think um, all the outward appearances put together. You could not accuse this person of anything that they've done that's wrong from an outside observer's perspective. Okay? This is the classic good person. All the rules always showed up to church on time. 100%. Boom. Okay? 
That's the Pharisee. And then we have a tax collector. Well, what's a tax collector? We don't have, we have the IRS in our culture, but it's very different back then, okay? Tax collector back then, from a Jewish perspective, and Jesus is talking to Jewish people, from a Jewish perspective, a tax collector was the scum of the earth. A traitor and a heretic. This might help you climb into the world of the text a little bit. Think about it like this. Everyone right now, think of someone whose political convictions you detest. And think of someone whose religious convictions you detest. Got someone? That's how the first audience would have thought of tax collector. A person just like the one you're thinking of right now. And so they both show up to church. All together guy and scum of the earth guy. They both show up to church. Verse 10, what does it say? They went to the temple to pray. All right, so we got some diversity in church on this day. Let's see what happens. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Wow. That's pretty impressive. So my father, he passed away about three and a half years ago from cancer. And one of my most poignant memories of his endurance of this suffering was the medical treatment that he received. It was phenomenal. He got his medical care done at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And his doctor was a a world-renowned specialist in the type of cancer um, that my dad had. And amazing man. He's super knowledgeable, but down to earth. And he, he just had a great way of speaking with his patients. Super loving, super compassionate. But he was a master of seeing the signs and symptoms of cancer in others. And he walked with my dad for about five years in his treatment. And he was just a master at kind of getting at what was going on in my dad's body in reference to his cancer. He was, he was hyper aware of what to look for. Now imagine if this doctor had cancer in his own body and he didn't realize it. And eventually it was too late and he died. How, how ironic would that be, right? To be hyper aware of the cancer in other people but fail to see it in yourself. Like that would be a tragedy, right? If I told you that story, you would be like, man, that is weird. Like who, who's ever heard of that one, right? That's bizarre. Well, that's what's going on in this text. You see it? A person who's hyper-aware of the sin of others but fails to see it in himself. He sees everyone else's sin but doesn't see his own. And Jesus is going to show us that this is a gross tragedy. Gross tragedy. Let's, Let's look at his prayer here. Look at it. Verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, if you follow the basic rule that I love to share with you guys all the time in how to interpret your Bible, 
we have to look at repeated words for emphasis. That's such a great clue to understanding your Bible. Well, what's the repeated word here in, in his prayer? He says, God once. He says, I, five times. See, he addresses God, but he's not looking to God, is he? If he was really looking at God, he would see God's glory and grandeur and holiness. And that would humble him, right? It has to. He's not looking at God, even though he sort of is praying to God. Instead, he's looking at himself, right? And he's looking at everyone else. He's looking at himself in reference to everyone else. Those who are sexually immoral. Those who are lacking in virtue signaling all the right social justice campaigns. Those who are unjust. Those who are religious and political heretics, tax collectors. See, this is a messed up prayer, right? He thanks God, but he thanks God for himself. Isn't that bizarre? And then he lists his accomplishments. So, so here's the summary. The essence of this guy is a perceived sense of moral superiority based on external performance of certain deeds. You see that? That's the essence of his prayer. Moral superiority based on external performance of certain deeds. Now, everyone in this room should pause. Be very, very careful. Because there's a great irony that's a potential for us all right now. Many of us are thinking right now, God, thanks that I don't ever pray like this Pharisee. <laughs> Wouldn't that be ironic? Right? Maybe we shouldn't be too quick to assume that we're any different. So let's ask ourselves, where are we tempted to get a sense of superiority over others? Man, it's clear that person doesn't go to the gym. I go to the gym three times a week. Man, look at how they're parenting their kids right now. We wouldn't do that. Look at, man, look at how they're spending their money. And our, our budget's pretty together. Now, of course, we would never say these things out loud, right? Well, maybe we would, but most of us probably don't. But what are those thoughts that you have that just unconsciously, like a, a knee jerk, just pass through your brain that give you that sense of superiority over others? It's automatic. I know it's automatic in my heart if I'm willing to look at it, if I'm willing to admit it, if I'm willing to be self-reflective. See, we all do this. The Pharisee is not the only one. Jesus has a word for us all in this text. See, here's the application. Those thoughts are produced by a mind that is functionally unaware of the gospel. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to war with those thoughts when they creep up. Just ask yourself this. What's the ratio in my mind? How much time, if I'm really honest, if I'm really self-reflective, how much time do I think about the sin of others compared to my own sin? Now, some of you, maybe in the minority in the room, I would guess, are way overly self-reflective and you beat yourself up constantly. That's a different problem, different sermon, a different way the gospel needs to address that. But I think a majority of us, maybe you're like me, maybe I'm the only one, but 
Man, I spent, the ratio's off. I'm very, very aware of the sin of others. And I think about that probably more than I think about my own sin. In terms of the amount of time taken up in your thought life, how much is uh, of sin problems in the world, how much is it out there versus how much is in here? Well, let's continue to see how this plays out. Verse 13. We changed characters now. We moved to the tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And now Jesus gives you the punchline. He addresses his audience, them, then, us now. I I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. Why? Well, here's why. Because, or for, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Another way to say it would be everyone who takes confidence in their own moral ability will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. All right, so let's break this down. Right off the bat, let's look at the posture What does the text say about the posture of these two men? Look back at verse 11. We see that the Pharisee is standing by himself. He is an island of righteousness unto himself. He doesn't need anyone because he's got it all together by himself. He's trusting in himself. That's what we've already learned. But consider the contrast of this posture with that of the religious and political heretic, the tax collector. The the person that you're thinking of where you detest their political convictions and their religious convictions. That person is standing far off. Verse 13. He's standing far off. He doesn't presume closeness to God or others. Here's another contrast. Look at it. If if you're really looking at the words, the, the, the text says that the Pharisee has his eyes lifted up. How do we know that? Because he's looking at everyone else around him. He's got his eyes looking up and he said, yeah, I see that tax collector over there. I see him. I'm not like that guy. But the tax collector, in contrast, he doesn't have his eyes lifted up. He's got his, his eyes staring at his feet. He's got his head bowed. He won't even raise his glance any farther than that. He, he's, he's expressed his remorse by, by thumping his own chest in his prayer also, look, look at it. It's so much shorter. So much shorter. It's beautifully short. See, prayers of repentance don't have to be long, especially if you're in public. So let's look at his prayer. We've looked at his posture. Now let's look at his prayer. He says two things in verse 13, and these are so vital for us to see this morning. If you want to be a Christian and walk daily the path of faith in Jesus, trusting and treasuring Jesus. Jesus summarized what, essentially what it's all about. Two things. Confessing you're a sinner and asking God for mercy. You see it there in verse 13? He confesses that he is a sinner and he asks God for mercy. God, be merciful to me, 
a sinner. That's it. He just simply casts himself on the mercy of God. Why? Because he knows he's so needy. He doesn't have a list of accomplishments. He knows that he's been unjust in the way he's collected money from people. He knows that, that his, uh, he's been a form of a traitor. He knows he can't clean himself up ever to be righteous enough in himself. He, he has to simply, check this out, he has to simply look to God and ask him outside of himself for the gift of mercy. The gift of righteousness. He can't earn it. He can't barter with God. He can't produce it on his own. He can't buy it. He can't negotiate with anyone to get it. He knows that he is powerless, but that God is powerful and mighty to save. So he simply asks in humility to receive mercy. So here's the summary. For the Pharisee, the big problem is out there. And that led him to pride. And for the tax collector, the big problem is in here and that, in humility, leads him to ask for mercy. So what do we find? Let's look at verse 14 again. What, what are the results of these two different types of prayers? Verse 14, I tell you, Jesus says, the tax collector, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. Now look at that word justified. Justified. This is a very, very important word in your Bible. And what it means is to be made righteous or to be declared righteous. Okay? The tax collector was not righteous based on his past. He knew that. Everybody knew that. But based on his prayer of confession and humility and heart change, Jesus says here, that he was justified, what? Meaning he was made righteous. Another way to understand it would be to say, in, 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 in the sight of God, he was declared to be righteous. The word justified and righteous are very similar in the original language. And remember in verse 9 what the original target audience was? What does it say? It says, those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that they were justified. See, his target audience is those who think they can trust themselves to be righteous, those who think they can earn God's favor and their ticket to heaven based on their perceived sense of moral achievement. But what is Jesus saying here? He's saying those people go to hell. Those people are not righteous. Those people will feel the wrath of God. They're not justified. Those who don't think they need mercy won't get any. Those who look to themselves for righteousness, those who look internal and not external, will find on the final day they are painfully lacking. They think they have eyes to see, but they are blind. And Jesus is saying that if you want to know for sure that you're saved, flee from any sense of self-righteousness and come to Jesus, the only righteous. And he will give you what is required of you as a free gift of grace Righteousness that he proved and he earned in his perfectly life lived. And then when he sacrificed himself on the cross for you and, and, and paid the penalty for your lack of righteousness and then rose from the dead to prove it all true. And you come to him and say, God, I need mercy. Jesus, I need mercy. I see you're the one who can give it. You promised it and I need it. He loves to give it. And that's how you become a Christian. That's the good news.
But here's the question. Can your pride handle that? Can your pride handle being confronted with your neediness? Can your pride handle being confronted with it's not all about externals? Can your pride handle the fact that, that, that God doesn't grade on a curve and the standard is not the person down the aisle. The standard is God himself and his perfection. Cast yourself on God's mercy and he will simply grant you forgiveness, not based on anything you've done, but simply as a gift. He will declare you to be righteous even though you're not. Based on Jesus, it's like he sees Jesus instead of you as you're united to Jesus by faith. That's how this works. He doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus' perfection. Jesus takes our sin. We get Jesus' perfection. How amazing is that? That's the gospel. And this is the news that changes us to be people who love God deeply and love one another deeply. It's not just information to be received. It's the power of transformation to be seen. How does it do that? How does it do that? How, well, here's, here's the answer. How does this news of the free gift of grace simply given to those who cast themselves on God's mercy in Jesus, how does that not change us? If you walk up to that tax collector and say, you know what? God has heard your prayer. It's all forgiven. You are righteous right now in God's sight. Do you think the tax collector goes, oh, that's cool. All right. Well, I'm going back to my tax collecting booth and I'm going to cheat some people now. Because, I mean, I'm forgiven, right? No, that's not what happens. You would say to that tax collector, if that's his response, oh, man, I don't think you get it. No, what would happen is that tax collector would be like, oh, my, oh my word, this is amazing. Thank you so much, God. And it would stir up love. In his heart, right? So how does this free gift of being declared righteous apart from good deeds deepen our love for God and love for others so that our church can be beautiful? Well, another way to say it, uh, Jesus told another, um, he, he, he taught another group of people with a poignant example that we won't get into this morning. But in Luke chapter 7, you go home and read it. A person gets forgiven and his teaching point is if someone is forgiven, if they know how much they've been forgiven, they're going to love much. He who's been forgiven much loves much. If you know what God has done for you, how could we not love him, right? So that's the vertical relationship. What about the horizontal relationship? How does it change our love for one another in the church, in our neighborhood, in your workplace? I think there's a clue in this text. Look back at verse 9. Told this parable to those who trusted in themselves... Okay, they're prideful. They got it all together. They can do it. They're able. That they were righteous. And what was the result? They treated others with contempt. What was the byproduct of trusting in himself in terms of his relationship with others? What was the byproduct of pride? Did the, did the Pharisees' arrogance and self-centeredness produce love in his relationships horizontally? That's not what the Bible says, is it? Did it produce harmony in community, beauty in relationships? No, it produced a smug sense of superiority. It produced contempt. Like, pfft, whatever. 
right? That kind of attitude. See, if we think we can clean ourselves up by our own good deeds, if we trust in ourselves to save ourselves, eventually that has to lead to pride, impatience with others, anger towards others for not getting their act together as, as, as well and as quickly as we have, and a complete lack of mercy, right? If you see those qualities in yourself, it probably has something to do with pride. If your knee-jerk response is anger at others because they're not, they don't have their thing together, if your knee-jerk response is just that subtle sense of superiority, if your knee-jerk response is impatience with others' speed in growing in holiness as fast as you've grown in holiness, I think Jesus has something to say for us here. There might be a disconnect in understanding how the gospel applies to our life, Right? But consider the tax collector. He knows for a fact down to his bones that he's a sinner deserving of wrath. And then he simply casts himself on God's mercy. And here's the words, you are forgiven. You are mine. You are my child and I love you. Go and sin no more because I don't hold your sins against you. I will take them on myself and pay the penalty myself so you don't have to. That's what it means to be justified. When a sinner who's brutally honest with himself and knows their helpless state, when they hear those words from God, Again, what does that produce in your life? It produces love. It produces love, love for God and love for others. This is how the gospel should transform our churches to be the most beautiful places in the whole world. In Madison, in in Wisconsin, in the whole United States. See, if you know you are a tax collector-like sinner, and we all are, if we're honest, and we see Jesus' offer of salvation through forsaking our own efforts and simply trusting his efforts for us through his death and resurrection, and we say yes to Jesus because we know we're so needy, and you hear him say those words, you are justified right now. I know you don't feel it, but it's true. It's a fact. Because you've come to me in faith and repentance, it's over. You didn't earn anything It's what I've earned for you. When you hear those words and you really know you need it, what does that produce in your life? It has to produce humility, right? And love. And so here's the deal for us in in terms of church. When you got a group of people that collectively have that as the main operating force in our lives, then that has to transform our relationships, right? It has to. How could it not? See, pride is banished. Moral superiority is banished. Arrogance is banished. If we're all collectively sitting at the foot of the cross or sitting at the foot of the empty tomb, pride doesn't live there, right? If you really get it, if you're really sitting there and looking, maybe if you got your head buried looking at your your navel, you get some pride. But if your eyes are lifted and you see that cross, you see that empty tomb, How could it not cause us to look to our left and our right and see fellow sinners forgiven just as we are and be like, man, I'm with you. I love you. Yeah, I feel for you. I have compassion for you. I can listen to you. I can be gentle with you. I can speak the truth to you, but it's going to come in a package that's covered in humility and gentleness and love, right? See, pride is banished. Superiority, banished. Arrogance, banished. And love and service and forgiveness is what we're known for as a church because we know how much we've been forgiven. See how that works? It's pretty simple, hard to do, right? 
but pretty simple. So that's the essence of the gospel. And if you want to boil it all down, if the gospel is the center, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done to save sinners based on his life, death, and resurrection, credited to those who come to him by faith simply as a gift so they can live a new life of love for him and love for others. If that is the center of our collective lives, we'll have no other choice but to be the most humble, loving, joyful, compelling organization in the world. That's how the gospel fuels this church. And that's why we talk about it every single week. Okay? And so I say we get after it. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this news. Thank you for the help that you bring to us by your word and working by your spirit. And we want to submit ourselves to you this morning and say thank you. And may that truly do um, what you intended to do to bring love and humility to our community. In Jesus' name, amen.